All right, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. All right, so as I started studying this passage, I realized that this is going to be one of those passages that is... um, you're going to have to make up your mind on. Uh, as I had to study through it and read through it, I had to make up my mind on where I was going to stand on it, what direction um, I believe the passage was going, because um, in studying it, there are really kind of two uh, diverging directions that people look at this passage to decide what it means, who it's talking about, how it applies to uh, the timeline of the end times. And so uh, what we'll do is we're going to break it down into two sections because there's really kind of two timelines that we're looking at or two uh, um, moments in history that we're looking at here in this passage. And so we'll cover the first one, then we'll go and hit and cover the second one. Um, And the first one is the one that's got the, not not controversy, not conflict, but just differing, uh, potentially differing of opinions. And so... um, Let's just kind of set the context, remember where we are at. Um, Chapter 5, or chapter 4, John is called up into the throne room of heaven uh, and told that, uh, watch what is going to happen next, or that he was told that he was going to be shown what was about to happen. Uh, In chapter 4, we have this this vision of the throne of God, and we see God sitting on his throne. Uh, In chapter 5, there is a scroll that is brought. This scroll is kind of the declaration of the end of times. Uh, It is sealed with seven seals seals. Uh, He is told that no one can open it, and John begins to cry, and then Jesus steps in, and he is the only one worthy to open the seals, to open the scroll. And so we saw the opening of the six different scrolls. Uh, we saw the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We saw the, uh, the rumors of, of war, or not the rumors of war, but the declaration that war and all this stuff would happen and come with them. And then we ended last week with the sixth seal. And chapter 8, the eighth seal is broken. And what we have here in chapter 7 is this this kind of parentheses moment. And it's a moment that is preparing us for what is about to happen. Because once once the seventh seal is broken... We kind of talked about how the first four seals are that kind of leading up to uh, the the bad stuff that happens at the end times. So once the seventh seal is broken, then in chapter 8 we get the trumpets, and then we get the the bowls of God's wrath, and the trumpets of judgment, and we get all of this. uh, That's when all the the bad stuff and kind of the crazy stuff starts happening. And so before that, we kind of have this kind of parentheses moment that is meant as a time of preparation to prepare those reading of what is about to happen. And so here in chapter 7, we're kind of sitting in this parentheses moment, and we see these glimpses of heaven um, in kind of two different time frames. So let's start off. We'll read verses 1 through... um, Well, let me get my pages unseparated. 1 through 8. We'll kind of cover that, and then we'll look at 9 through 17. So let's look at 1 through 8, we'll pray, and then we'll just kind of work our way through it. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or anything or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, 
with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we study your word, Father God, I pray for clarity. God, I pray for understanding. Father God, I pray that you would just guide my words, God, that everything might be clear. And Father God, I pray that whatever side we choose to stand on, Father God, we know that you are the God who is in control. And Father God, we know that that this is an open thing that we can uh, believe differently and still show each other grace and love and have fellowship with each other. So God, we pray for wisdom. We pray for understanding. We pray for clarity. So in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay, so here's the scene that he sees. He sees these four angels come and hold back the corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. And he, um, the angel that has the power to bring destruction on the land and the sea and the waters is told to hold everything back. And they're told to hold everything back until, until those who believe in Jesus, until the servants of our God are sealed on their foreheads. Then he goes on to list out these 144,000. Now, here's where the, once again, I guess the differing of opinions comes into play. And so, well, first of all, before I even get to the two that are legitimate, let's just go ahead and say that uh, when you hear Mormons, when you hear Jehovah's Witness, and they're talking about 144,000, this is where they get that from. This is where that number comes from. And whatever they say about it is just, it's just wrong. It's just bad. Uh, Mormons used to say there would only be 144,000 people in heaven from this passage until there became a more than 144,000 Mormons and they completely changed their belief system because it didn't fit anymore. Um, Jehovah's Witness say there'll be 144,000 in this kind of upper echelon of heaven, then everyone else will kind of be in, in regular heaven or, or downgraded heaven or whatever that might be. So this is kind of where they get that number. This is where they kind of derive that from and they are way off base, nothing even close to being scripturally accurate. Now... There are two other ways that we can look at this. Now, when we started Revelation, we talked about how, we talked about several different ways people interpret it, but we said there are two that we are going to kind of focus on, that when we came to moments like this, I'm going to do my best to, to explain both and lay out the pros and cons of both. One is the dispensationalist view, and the other we're just going to call the historic view. Uh, just because it's the oldest, it's what was originally um, believed. And so the dispensationalist view. Now remember, when we talk about dispensationalism, that is a way of approaching Scripture that has a couple of rules to it. One, it divides the Bible up into certain dispensations or periods of time where God interacted with humanity in different ways. Uh, depending on how different depends on who you're reading or what kind of uh, wing of dispensationalism it is. 
But there are two main distinctives that kind of help define uh, dispensationalism. One is a literal interpretation of Scripture, always literal, um, no buying into symbolism or no, no kind of symbolic uh, approach to Scripture. Everything is 100% literal all the time. And two, there is a, a clear 100% distinction between Israel and the church. So what a dispensationalist believes or what a dispensationalist view of Revelation is, when God sent Jesus to the earth and Jesus died on the cross and the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts and the church was established, that in that moment, God took Israel... Israel who he had worked through throughout the Old Testament. Israel who God had worked through um, giving his promises, giving the laws, giving his covenants. God took Israel and kind of set them on the shelf. And then from the time of Christ until the time of the rapture, Jesus or God worked through the church. That's how God worked in the earth. He no longer worked through Israel. Uh, He worked through the church. Now the dispensationalist view is... In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, when John was called to come up here uh, and and see what must happen, uh, most dispensationalists say that is when the rapture occurs. And so the church is off the board now. The church is no longer on the earth. And what God does is He takes Israel off the shelf and He kind of puts them back on the playing field. And so what God does is um, Israel is put on the shelf. He uses the church. The rapture happens. God takes Israel off the shelf. And that's who He begins to use over these final seven years of the tribulation and the great tribulation to accomplish His will, spread the gospel. So the dispensationalist view sees these uh, 144,000 where it says uh, from every tribe of the sons of Israel and it lists out all these tribes, 12,000 from each. The dispensationalist view says that these are literal Israelites that once uh, the rapture of the church happened, God does a supernatural work in Israel. God kind of sends a revival. You have these 144,000 Israelites who accept Christ, who get saved, and become kind of God's um, missionaries on the earth during the uh, time of tribulation. They go and they share the gospel. They spread the gospel. People get saved up until the point to where kind of grace is kind of taken off the table and the enemies of God stay the enemies of God until Jesus comes back. So that's kind of the, the dispensationalist view. That's kind of the probably the prevailing view in uh, America. This is um, men like John MacArthur. John MacArthur is one of my favorite pastors. This is what he believes. Uh, if you get his commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, basically it's going to read exactly like what I just said. Then you have the historic view. The historic view is that the 144,000 are not Israelites, but it is the church. The historic view is that the where it says the the 144,000 from the sons of the tribe of Israel, and he lists out those tribes, that this is a symbolic representation of the church. He does not refer to or mean uh, that this is literal Israel, but this is the church, and this is a sealing of the church. Um, The reason why this is a prevailing view, or this is why this is a popular view, a couple reasons. One, the number 12,000. 
The number 12,000, uh, 12 and 1,000 are both numbers that are uh, typically viewed throughout Revelation and in uh, apocalyptic writing as being numbers that represent perfection. Uh, once we see the new heaven and the new earth and you have the foundations being laid, you have the 12 gates, uh, the 12 layers, um, 12,000 is one of the, the, the measurements of the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, it's a picture of perfection. And so this idea of 12,000 times uh, 12, this idea of 144,000, is this a symbolic or a picture of God's completeness or of God's work, of God's uh, working in the church perfectly? Um, another reason why this is accepted or why this is believed is because when you read through the New Testament, the New Testament does not just make a, an argument that there is a distinction between Israel and the church or that Israel has been put on the shelf and the church is now Israel. What I believe is the, the New Testament makes an argument that the church is the continuation of the promises made to Israel. That it's not Israel over here, the church over here, but they are kind of one and the same. They kind of follow the same Path. You've got God introducing through Israel, giving His promises, and then once Christ comes, He fulfills most of, if not all of the covenants given to Israel, and it is passed down to the church. That's why Romans talks about the church being grafted into the vine of Israel. So Galatians chapter 3, actually all of Galatians is really about this, but Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That promise is the, the, the covenant made to Abraham. I will bless all the nations through you. Your children will outnumber the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. Uh, all of that fulfilled in the church. Romans 2.29, But a Jew is one outwardly in circumcision but a Jew is one inwardly, excuse me. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. There, Paul makes an argument that those who want to say that it is Jews who receive the promises or Jews that receive salvation, Paul's argument is that being a Jew is not one ethnically, but it's one like we talked about this morning, of placing your faith and trust in Jesus. That's how you are considered a spiritual Jew, that you are tied into the promises made through God to the Old Testament. And then Philippians 3.3 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Kind of carry on that same idea that we talked about this morning. So the argument is that there is no distinction between Israel and the church, but the church is the continuation and the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel, that it's all one story. It's all focused on Jesus. Jesus is the center part of it. It was Israel and the promises leading to Jesus and the church flowing out of Jesus. And so those are your two main arguments. This is... The dispensationalist view, which says uh, this is Israel. The church has been put on the shelf now uh, because of the rapture. So this is Israel who is now going to take the gospel out. And then the historic view says the rapture has not happened. This is still the church, and the church is uh, being sealed. And we'll talk about the sealing here in a second. Okay, so what are the arguments against? If those are kind of the arguments for, kind of laying out why they believe what they believe. What are the arguments against? Here's the arguments against the dispensationalist view. One, there's just a, a, 
A difference in the core of beliefs from the distinction between Israel and the church. So that'd be one. We kind of talked about that. Second is when you look at the order of the names listed. As you look at the order of uh, Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and all of these, these tribes that are listed. The tribes of Israel are listed at least 20 times in the Old and New Testament. And not one time are they listed in this manner. And when you look at how they're listed, there's, there's no real consistent reason or nothing that fits what we've seen previously. Let me explain. These are not all Jacob's sons. So if you're listing the 12 tribes of Israel, you're listing uh, Jacob's 12 sons. Dan is not listed in this list. Dan was one of uh, Jacob's sons. Now, Dan as a tribe, uh, many consider was kind of omitted or kind of got the boot because of their prevailing idolatry. Uh, when the nation of Israel splits, Dan is one of the ones that helped set up some of the false worship, uh, becoming one of the chief areas to go to worship uh, idols and idolatry. And so many consider Dan kind of got the boot. Uh, and so the but anyways, he's not listed. And then Manasseh is included. If you remember, Manasseh was one of Joseph's sons. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Manasseh is listed in this list where Dan is not. So these are not just the sons of Jacob. Also, they're not tribes that inherited the promised land. So if you want to say, okay, well, he's not listing the, tri- the sons of David. He's listing the, the tribes as they came into the promised land. Each of these tribes got a piece of land. Dan is omitted. Dan got land. Levi, Levi is included in the list. If you remember Levi, when the Israelites go into the promised land, the Levites are told, you don't get a land. You get dispersed among everybody else's lands, among all the rest of the people, because you're going to be the ones that that lead them in worship of the Lord. So Levi is listed in here, but Levi did not get land. Joseph is listed. Um, But if you remember, when they go into the promised land, Joseph's um, plot or Joseph's land is divided between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Judah or, or Joseph is listed, but Ephraim is not. Also, when you look at the, at the layout of the names, if you wanted to say, well, this, they're kind of grouped together in um, the, 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 the wives or the women that had the sons for Jacob. Jacob's, the, the, the sons of Jacob's concubines, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, are listed before the sons of Rachel and Leah. So there's a problem there. Those, if that's what you were doing, uh, Leah's, uh, excuse me, Rachel's sons would have been listed first because that was the, the wife that he loved the most. Then Leah, then the concubines. And fourth, or fifth, or fourth, yeah. Um, Judah is listed before Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. Typically, Reuben is the one that is listed first because he is the firstborn. Judah, though, is listed first here. And why is Judah listed first? Because Jesus is uh, the Lion of Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. So therefore, Judah's tribe takes precedence because of Christ. So those are some of the arguments against kind of the dispensationalist view. One, you've got to be just... There's the inherent difference between Israel and the church that you, if you don't agree with that. And then, the, when you look at the names, there's no... Um, 
There's no order that they are listed, or the order that they are listed does not make sense in any other way they are listed in Scripture. And then if you take Jesus being of the tribe of Judah as important, which it is important, He comes first, which helps kind of lead us the direction of the church. Uh, so you got the, the, the differences in, in just the, the theological framework, and then you've got the, the list of the names. So the big difference or the big takeaway or the big knock against the historic view is it is dependent on the symbolism of the numbers. That you have to be, able, be willing to take this as a symbolic uh, picture, a symbolic vision, a symbolic listing out. Because he says, And I've heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So you have to take this as not a literal uh, listing out or not a literal uh, description, but this is symbolic to represent the church. So if you don't want to embrace the symbolism or if you don't agree with the symbolism or if you feel sketchy about the symbolism, then, then this whole belief falls apart. And so... As best I can, that's kind of why each side believes what they believe. And that's the, the knocks against both sides. Uh, the, the, the basic theological differences, but also the, the framework of the names and the, the dependence on the symbolism. Now, with that kind of out of the way, kind of saying who we're talking about, what is going on? Because what is going on works regardless of who you are talking about. If you believe this is a group of Israelite missionaries who are going to go out, the sealing idea works. If you believe this is the church still on the earth uh, because the rapture has not occurred, this is still the church, uh, then, then the sealing still works. So here's what is going on with the sealing. Because he says, Don't let anything happen until the servants of our God are sealed on their foreheads. So the idea of holding everything back here. Remember, they're about to crack open the seventh seal. When they open the seventh seal... Man, stuff starts happening. The, the trumpets, the wrath, the bowls, all of this stuff starts going on. So the idea of the ceiling here is this is God's protection being placed on His people. Whether it's the Israelites, whether it's the church, God's ceiling, God's protection is being placed on these individuals. What that means is, now we're about to see in the second half, uh, we see this list of people who are being martyred uh, for their faith during the time of the tribulation. So this does not refer to those or to these people being sealed, meaning that they will not be persecuted for their faith. Throughout the New Testament, persecution for your faith is a common theme that runs throughout, that will continue throughout Revelation, that will continue through the end time until Christ comes back at the second coming and establishes His kingdom and His throne and His rule on earth. Persecution for the church has been promised by Jesus, will continue. So this is not a protection or a ceiling against persecution. What it is, though, is it is a ceiling against the as God pours out His judgment through these trumpets, as God pours out His wrath through the bowls that He is about to pour out, this is a ceiling or a protection from God's punishment. That God's punishment, God's judgment, God's wrath is not for His 
children. It is not for his people, but it's for his enemies. And so as we see all this stuff about to happen, as we read these next few chapters, and there's the, uh, the crazy locusts, and there's the war, and there's this happening, and this happening, and all this stuff going on, there is a protection for believers against that. Now, we have a precedence for this. In the book of Exodus, when God sends the ten plagues against Egypt, the people of Israel are spared from the plagues. Go through and read it. It talks about how when the bugs come in and they eat all the crops or they destroy the crops, the crops in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israels live, it stayed firm or it stayed, it was safe, it was protected. When the animals are attacked by the gnats and the flies and they have the boils, uh, all of Israel's are protected. The people did not get the boils. They did not get the sickness. Whenever the, the, the darkness came, there was still light in the land of Goshen. And at the final one, once the death of the firstborn came, the Israelites were told to put the blood on the doorpost of the door, and they would be protected. And throughout all of the plagues, God protected His people while at the same time punishing His enemies, even though they were both living in the same area. So this idea of being sealed is that God's people, once again, whether it's Israelite missionaries or whether it is the church, God's people are going to be protected from God's judgment, protected from God's wrath as all of this stuff is being poured out on his enemies. Those who have rejected them, those who have fought against him, the Antichrist, those who follow the Antichrist, those who have taken the mark of the beast, they will be punished. They will receive God's wrath and these all these different forms, while God's people, whoever they are, whatever stance you take, they will be sealed and therefore protected. But though they are protected from God's judgment and God's wrath, they will not be protected, so to speak, from persecution. Persecution still occurs for believers. So let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. So we have this picture of, um, let's just stop here because there's a, some neat symbolism here. We've got a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languishes, standing before the throne, uh, before the Lamb. Now, to me, what that does is that immediately brings up the, the Abrahamic covenant. That immediately brings to mind the covenant, the promise made to Abraham that I will give you, uh, your descendants will, will outnumber the stars of the sky. They're not going to be numberable, numerable. They're not going to be counted. That, that, that uh, through the promise of Abraham, his promise went to every tribe, every tongue, every nation with a multitude that no one could number. This appears to me to be the exact fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled right now in this moment. And they are standing before the throne. They are standing before the Lamb who is Jesus clothed in white robes, clothed in white robes because they have been cleansed by the righteousness of Christ. They have been cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus. So they are believers with palm branches in their hands. What does palm branches make us think of? We think of, we think of Jesus coming into 
Jerusalem before Easter Sunday on that Palm Sunday. People are laying down those palm branches, praising Jesus as the Messiah, praising Him for what He has come to do. So we have this picture of worship from all people, all tongues, all nationalities, all tribes, praising Jesus for what He has done. Crying out in a loud voice, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Remember, the God is on His throne. The Lamb is the one who is worthy to open the seal. That is Jesus. We have two parts of the two persons of the Trinity seen right there. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we start off with this great picture in heaven where where believers are are worshiping God, where these angels that we've seen in the past two chapters, the the 24 elders on their throne, the the four beasts or the four creatures that were described with the the head of the face or the the head of a man, the head of a lion, the head of an eagle, and I, I can't remember what the fourth one was, but they're all bowing down and praising God. So we have this incredible scene once again in heaven where God is being worshiped for who He is and what He has done through Jesus. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me. So one of the elders, these 24 elders turned to John saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Now he knows, he's just, he's just asking John and John says, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What we have here is this this number, this great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every tongue, every people group who are coming before in their white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who have been killed and martyred, persecuted for their faith during the time of the Great Tribulation. Now, there are some who would argue that this is all the believers uh, throughout history. Um, But I would argue and I would believe that because it says the Great Tribulation, this is something that MacArthur too uh, would agree with and says that, that this is so that dispensationalist view agrees with this, that these are those who were persecuted during the second half of that seven-year tribulation, which is considered the great tribulation, which is when most of the persecution against believers, whether it's the church or whether it's people being saved from these Israelite missionaries, whether the, when believers are persecuted. And so John sees this great crowd of people, and it's all these who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, and it's all these who have been persecuted for their faith, who have been martyred and died for their faith. And verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He sits on the throne, um, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
And so we see this great multitude of people who have been martyred for their faith. But at the same time, everything about them in heaven is pictured as a beautiful, great, encouraging thing. It talks about how they will serve God in His temple night and day. They will hunger no more, nor thirst, nor be struck down by the heat. The Lamb, who is Jesus, will shepherd them, will guide them, lead them to springs of living water. Who is Jesus? He's the one who has the living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Though that time on earth, that time during the tribulation, it was difficult, it was hard, it was struggling. What they have to look forward to, the hope that they have in heaven, is so much more, infinitely more glorious and victorious than anything they suffered on the earth. So, so we close out. Here's what I want us to look at and see and notice is the chronology of what is happening. Because once again, this is an apocalyptic book. And so as we see these visions, and and John says stuff like um, in verse 9, and after this I look. When you see and after this, it's typically a sign that something else is changing. There's a a a change in the time frame. And so once again, no matter what your view is, dispensationalist or historic, everyone pretty much agrees on this. That what we have in the first eight verses where you have this picture of the ceiling. When you have the angels holding back the wind, holding back the destruction, waiting until God's servants are sealed. This is happening at the beginning of the tribulation. This is happening right at the beginning of the tribulation. God is taking those who are His, who are going to be His. He is sealing them, protecting them from what is about to happen. Then what we have in verses 9 through 17 is we have at the end. We have at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We have once everything is done. So one is at the beginning. Here's the ceiling. Here's the protection against God's judgment, against God's wrath, but not against persecution. And here at the end, we have this great multitude who has suffered for their faith, who who have been martyred for their faith, who have been... Punished because they trusted Jesus Christ by the enemy, by the beast, by the Antichrist. Yet even though they suffered, no matter what happened in that seven-year span, what they have to look forward to is so much greater than anything that they experienced, good or bad, while on the earth. And what we have in chapter 7, as we kind of have this parenthesis in the midst of these seals being open, is we have this moment of encouragement for those who are reading. It's this moment of encouragement saying, look, if you are about to go through the tribulation, whether you're the church because the rapture hasn't happened, or whether the rapture has happened and you're one of the 44,000 Jews and you're going to be saved by their testimony, if you are going into the tribulation, understand that God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. God has not lost you. In fact, God has sealed you and you are His. And when everything's about to happen, you are protected from God's judgment. You are protected from God's wrath. And it's a reminder that God is faithful and that God is is with them and God has not left them. But it's also a reminder that that seven years will be difficult and there will be persecution and there will be a multitude that no one can number who were, were martyred or who died or who stayed faithful during that time. And maybe it was difficult to stay faithful. Maybe it was hard to stay faithful when everything was crumbling around you. But once you make it through, once you push forward, once you're faithful, once you um, 
Whatever you do during that seven years, you stay faithful to Christ, even if it means being martyred. You come through on the other side in heaven in clothes or in robes of white, being led by the shepherd, the Lamb of God, to live to, to uh, living water, to uh, have your, your tears wiped away by God Himself. No hunger, no thirst, no pain, no sadness. That what you have to look forward to is a time of joy and a time of rest and a time of provision by God Himself. So no matter what your belief is on the front end, this is a reminder, this parentheses, before the seals are broken, before the trumpets are blown, before the bowls of wrath are poured out, this is a reminder that God is still in control, that God is faithful, that God loves His people. And though things are about to get crazy, God has a plan, and God's plan will come to fruition. And God's plan revolves around His glory and Him caring for and lovingly protecting and bringing bringing His children home to Him. So no matter where you stand, we can be reminded that God is good and that God is faithful. All right. So let's just... I'm just going to pray for us tonight to close us out. And I'm going to pray. What I want us to think about as we close out in prayer is this. Yes, this is about the end times, but we can still take the truth of God's faithfulness even now. That God is going to be faithful to us. That God is still good. Maybe we haven't been sealed yet in this capacity because we haven't hit that end time. But there's going to be a time when we stand before God because of Jesus Christ in those robes of white, standing before Him worshiping, praising, serving Him, having our tears wiped away. There is no more sadness. There is no more pain. And what we have in Him is infinitely greater than what we have in this world right now. So as we pray, let's remember God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Let me pray to close this out. Father God, we come before You now. And Father God, I thank You that... Father God, I thank You that even when there are different approaches to handling your word. Valid approaches, I will say. Father God, it doesn't change the overall purpose of your word. Father God, whether it's someone coming from a dispensational perspective, a historic perspective, Father God, we get to the same point, and that's that you are faithful, and that you are good, and you have a plan, and it's a plan that can be trusted. So Father God, I pray that through this, you would remind us that you are good. Remind us that you are in control. Father God, not just of the end times, but of our day-to-day life. That you are a God who is sovereign. You are a God who has a plan. You are a God who knows and who has worked out and who has the best plan for us. God, help us to trust you. Help us to lean on you. Help us to depend on you. Father God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.